I am a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Romans 1, 14 through 17, the words of the Apostle Paul, I am a debtor. You know, the Bible presents life under different figures. The Bible speaks of life and our journey in life as a building that we are building, and we must build that building upon the proper foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11. No other foundation can man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The Bible presents the journey that we make through life as a race upon which we enter in terms of the Christian race upon our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of our sins, confessing him to be the Christ, and then being buried with him in baptism, rising to Walk in newness of life. And there's another figure, walk. But it's also a race. The Hebrews writer declares that we are to, that we are to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians reminds us that that race is a race that we'll win if we completely run it to the end successfully. All win, not just one, but all win that race. The Bible also describes our Christian life as a warfare. We're in a battle. We are in a battle with Satan. And so in the Ephesian letter at chapter 6, the Apostle Paul admonishes us to put on the whole armor of God so that we may successfully wage this warfare with Satan. He reminded Timothy to fight the good fight of faith and to lay hold on eternal life. But do we see another figure here in the text that we have looked at in Romans 1 and verse 14 especially? And the statement, I am a debtor, the late N.B. Hardiman, who was known as the prince of preachers of his day, said he saw a figure in this statement by Paul, I am a debtor that he saw a figure of a great ledger, a great ledger before the mind of the Apostle Paul with the debits on one side and the credits on the other. And I think it behooves us to think about our lives in that sense and under that figure of a great ledger. And as we examine that ledger, if we examine it as we should, We understand and appreciate fully that we are indeed debtors. But you know something? I believe we live in a time when, tragically, to a great extent, 
There are far too many people who do not see it that way at all. And so rather than expressing it this way, I am a debtor, they might be more inclined to express it this way. I am a getter. I am a getter. You owe me. And I know, I owe no man anything. I don't owe anything. You owe me for whatever reason. Getters rather than debtors. It's not necessarily new, but I do think it is more prevalent perhaps in our time than perhaps at any other time in my life, at least. And yet, when we think about it, in so many realms, we are debtors. How many of you this morning grew every bite of food that you ate for breakfast this morning? Or were you dependent upon someone rising early with the birds and sowing seed and planting crops and harvesting those crops and getting those crops to market and those manufacturers getting them into stores so that ultimately you could benefit. You're a debtor for your food, and so am I. Now, when it comes to clothing, that's different with me. I made this suit. No. <laughs> you laughed. <laughs> you could give me all the raw materials, all the finest fabric in the world, and if I were to attempt to make a suit and stand before you, you could not listen to a word I said because you would be so distracted by what I had on. You couldn't get over it, probably. No, you'd listen anyway. Obviously, we're indebted for our food, for our clothing. Now, this morning, I had to completely put a new engine in my car before I could get here this morning. Ron Payne should be, yes, Ron knows how little I know about cars and about engines. I know where it is, I think. No, you see, we're dependent in realm after realm after realm of our daily lives. We ought to put on the debit side of the ledger so much that we owe. What about the government? What about the, what about the system of government that we are privileged to serve under? Does that mean everything is, is good and right about every individual in the government and that we're deeply pleased with everything that's happening in government at, at all times and that there, are, there is no corruption uh, at all at any level at any time in government? No, we know that that's not the case. But the system of government that has been established and that which continues until this moment in time is a system under which we are able to come together and to worship God freely. Now, I'll freely admit there have been some developments recently that raise your eyebrows in Houston, Texas, for example, where those uh, denominational uh, Preachers were under threat, it seemed, or about to be for a while, and that was pulled, the subpoenas, I understand, later pulled. There are some things that occur, have occurred, are occurring, and no doubt that may occur in the future that will cause us consternation and concern about our freedoms, but as of now, we have 
that freedom. And we should respect the government under which we serve, realizing that we do give allegiance to a greater government, the kingdom of God, and understanding that, as Acts 5.29 reminds us, we ought to obey God rather than men, but that the government is an institution that is God-ordained, and that if it works as it should, then indeed it is what God has determined. And we can be thankful for the freedoms that the system of government under which we serve allows us to teach the truth, preach the truth, and live the truth. So, I am a debtor, and so are you in so many ways. But was that what Paul was speaking of in Romans 1.14 when he said, I am a debtor? No. No, that's not what Paul was thinking of. He was thinking of something else altogether. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, to all men. So as much as is in me, I'm ready to do what? Preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Ready to preach the gospel. There's the indebtedness to which Paul makes reference. I am a debtor to preach the gospel and to teach the truth of the gospel to all mankind. Rich and poor, black and white, of every background, of every race, of every economic background. There is no distinction where the obligation to preach the gospel of Christ is concerned. Paul understood that he was a debtor. And how did Paul become a debtor? He became a debtor at his conversion after which he was given a commission. And so it involved his conversion that led to his commission. Saul, as you well know, as he was known before, he was later known as the Apostle Paul, was a persecutor of the Lord's church. He was one who was determined to bring those all the way from Damascus back down to Jerusalem, bound that they might be persecuted for what he thought was an apostate cause. And on that Damascus road, the Lord appeared to him and did not convert him there, but told him in response to the question, Lord, what will you have me to do to go into the city of Damascus? And there it will be told you what you must do. But he also revealed to him that he had a purpose for him after his conversion. He had a commission following his conversion that was absolutely crucial. And we read of Saul's conversion in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. All of these accounts give us the full story. And in Acts 26, as he stood before King Agrippa on that occasion at Caesarea, he revealed something the Lord had said to him regarding that commission that he would be involved in after his conversion. And in Acts 26, 16 through 18, he told Agrippa, here's what the Lord said to me at that time, but rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What a commission Saul learned about right there that he was to be involved in after he had completed his conversion. As we read in Acts 22, when Ananias came to him, having been sent by the Lord, and said to him, to a man who was praying, because that's all he knew to do, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And after he did that and completed his obedience to the gospel of Christ, he understood the commission that he had and he was compelled by that commission. He understood the debt, the debt that he had incurred because of the grace that had been extended to him in being able to hear the truth and to obey the truth and to turn from persecutor to ultimately being the persecuted for Christ. And he lived all of his life seeking to fulfill that commission, seeking to pay that debt lovingly and willingly and sacrificially all the days of his life. And in the First Corinthian letter at chapter 9 and verse 16, he wrote this about the preaching of the gospel, the paying of that debt, if you will. He said, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And don't we wish that every preacher of the gospel had that same kind of determination, that same kind of dedication to preach nothing but the gospel, nothing but the truth. If every gospel preacher had that kind of determination, as did the Apostle Paul, then we would not have the deviation that we see in pulpit after pulpit, in place after place, as those who fill those pulpits in many places depart from that pure, simple gospel of Christ, which Paul was determined he would never depart from. And he fulfilled his obligation. And in Acts chapter 20, as he met with the Ephesian elders at Miletus in that poignant and parting scene. At Acts 20 and verse 22, he said this to them. And now I go bound. See, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations Await me. Chains and tribulations await me. Then what does he say? But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish. So that I may finish what? My race. There's another one of those figures. That I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. That gets back to his debt to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He calls it the gospel of the grace of God because it was God's grace that revealed that gospel to him. Gave him the opportunity to enter the race and to finish that race with joy. And he said, I determined to finish it with joy even though I know persecutions, tribulations, and trials await me. I can still finish my race with joy even though I'm going to be persecuted and I know it's coming. Yes. Why? Because he appreciated to the fullest extent the grace of God and he understood the great debt 
that he owed to the one who had made possible his salvation. And so he continued, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul fulfilled that obligation. And in 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, he expressed there in that letter to Timothy his final letter that he was already being poured out as a drink offering. He said, the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. And then he said, therefore, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. But he added very quickly and thankfully, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Paul paid his debt. He paid his debt. And in so doing, did he earn his salvation? No. He knew that was not a possibility, and he wrote that time and time again by inspiration, that one cannot earn one's salvation, but that by no means excuses one from paying the debt to the fullest extent that he can. Now, what about us? What about us? There's a principle that is set forth back in the Old Testament that is pertinent to us in our time. As God says to Ezekiel the prophet at verse 17 of chapter 3 of Ezekiel beginning, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Now we come to the New Testament and we see that principle borne out in the words of Jesus in the great sermon on the mount at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and following. You are the salt of the earth. He says to disciples, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then he says, You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When Jesus was among men, he said, I am the light of the world. But when he left the world, he commissioned the disciples 
to be that light. The apostles initially were given that great commission, as we so rightfully call it, and they were to preach the gospel to every creature. But there's no apostle living today, only those who have been blessed to hear the gospel of Christ, which they were so faithful to deliver and to obey that gospel. Therefore, those who have are those light reflectors today, reflecting the light of the world. Paul understood that. The same one who wrote these words we're examining, I am a debtor, also wrote these in Philippians 2, beginning at verse 14. Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, listen to it, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's writing that to the Philippian church. Therefore, he's writing that to the White Oak Church. He's writing that to every congregation that existed or ever shall exist until time is no more. You are to shine as lights in the world. Holding fast, he continues, the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, he says, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. We are to be the lights in this generation. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Don't be complainers, be contributors. Be contributors. Understand and appreciate that great ledger and the debit side versus the credit side and see that we're all under obligation to pay our debt to the Lord. If you look at Matthew 25, 31 through 46, you remember the text is a depiction by Jesus a depiction, a projection, if you will, of the judgment scene and what will take place at that judgment scene. Those on the right and those on the left. And those on the left, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, what about those on the left? Down at verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What is the Lord saying to these people projecting forward to that scene? It can be summarized by saying this, he was saying, you didn't pay your debt. You did not pay your debt. You did not meet your 
obligation. Successful in life, what does it mean? Does it mean accumulation or contribution? In the Lord's eyes, what is success in life? In the world's eyes, success in life is what we certainly understand it to be today from the world's perspective. And that is, it is accumulation. How much can I accumulate? How much can I build in terms of a worldly empire? What kind of, what kind of power can I achieve? What kind of, what kind of awards may I receive? How will men and women view us in terms of our lives and how truly successful they have been when we leave this world. The late N.B. Hardiman asked that question in his sermon when he said, how will the world remember N.B. Hardiman in effect? What will they say? And I love... I love how he worded it. And here's the quote. Have I been like wings to lift my fellows up to higher heights? Or have I been like weights to drag them down to lower depths? Wings or weights? How will I be remembered? How will you be remembered? It matters not how much we may accumulate or what we may achieve in terms of secular pursuits and achievements. If we fail to pay the greatest debt that has ever been enjoined upon us, then we failed miserably. We have failed miserably. Jesus paid it all is a song we have in our songbooks. In fact, there are two versions of it side by side. The chorus of one, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. That is a beautiful thought, isn't it? Jesus paid it all. That is, he made possible the removal of our sins. There was nothing we could do on our own to do that. We were totally dependent upon him to remove those sins. And his death on the cross and our obedience to the terms that he has set forth in his word bring about that removal of sin. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Believe that I am he or die in your sins, Jesus said. We must repent of our sins, change our mind about our sins. Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5, Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all in like manner perish. Eternally you'll perish. We must sweeten our lips with the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whoever confesses me, Jesus said, before men, him will I confess before the Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him will I deny before the Father in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. And 33, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Paul wrote in the Roman letter. But Paul also wrote, 
that as many of you writing to Christians at that time as were baptized into Christ, did put on Christ, you were buried with him in baptism. And Jesus himself said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. And when I've done that, I cannot rise from that watery grave to say, I have paid it all. No, Jesus has paid it all. I've simply met the conditions that he set forth to be forgiven of my sins. And when I rise from that watery grave of baptism, I don't rise as one with no further obligation. Oh yes, the sins of the past are gone. But I am then under the greatest and most significant obligation that I shall ever assume. And that is the wonderful obligation, the wonderful debt that I seek for the rest of my living days to pay as I live faithfully the Christian life. Understanding that even with my best efforts, I fall short at times, but that blood keeps on cleansing me from sin as I keep on walking in the light as he is in the light. As I seek to fulfill my obligation to my God and to my fellow man, as I understand and appreciate that I am no longer a getter when I come from the watery grave. I am a debtor, as Paul understood and appreciated. What about you? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, then Jesus has not paid it all because you have not allowed him to by your obedience to his will. But if you will obey, he will pay it all in the sense of removing your past sins and allow you to rise to pay a loving obligation, a loving debt, a willing debt that you delight to seek to pay all the days of your life because of the gratitude and love you feel for him who paid it all. And if you've done that at one time, but you know now as a wayward child of God, you're no longer a debtor, but you have become more of a getter, be a debtor again. Come home in repentance as we stand to sing. Will you come?